Welcome to the Lagan Valley Vineyard Podcast. We are a community passionate about seeing the Lagan Valley area filled with the presence and the teachings of Jesus. If you would like to connect with us or if we can help you in any way, please visit our website, laganvalleyvineyard.com. Well, good morning, everyone. Good morning. Um, and also, Happy New Year. Oh, what? That's a month's time, right? Today, for the church, is New Year's Day. It's the start of the brand new year for the church. The liturgical church calendar begins on the first Sunday of Advent. And we have a bit of a a tendency to be able to rush towards Christmas. And yet there is a season before that which encourages us to wait, to slow down, and to hope a little bit more. And that is Advent. And this is New Year's Day for us. And my sense is that actually the Father is wanting to invite us into a brand new year of his work and his activity for us to be able to enter into a new year of maturity and depth, for us to recognize him at work in and through our lives in a brand new way. So happy new year, everybody. Today is the first Sunday of Advent. And with Christmas just around the corner, we are invited into a season that is full of expectation, that is full of longing, and that is full of hope. And through Advent, we get the chance to prepare ourselves as we anticipate Christmas Day, whenever we're gonna celebrate Jesus's birth. And yet we're also invited to wait and prepare ourselves for the center of our hope which is the second advent, the return of the king. And so together in community, as we gather on Sundays, as we sing ancient songs, as we teach the scriptures, as we engage in acts of generosity, as there are parties for hosting and marshmallows for toasting, as we engage in our three-to-one readings together, and as we steal little pockets of quiet throughout the franticness of December, this season encourages us to become a people formed by hope for us to be able to cultivate hope in our lives and also to embody hope and to be hope for this region around us. And as Andy said, over the next three Sundays, I'm gonna be teaching into the incarnation of Jesus, the word of the Father now in flesh appearing. And we're gonna see that as Jesus, or as we like to know him, Emmanuel, took on flesh and blood and chose to dwell in time and in a certain place and in a body, we're gonna see that the dailiness of our lives, that the life of this city and this region, that actually even our very bodies can become wombs and mangers and temples in which the Messiah wants to build a home once again. So this morning, I'm gonna begin with today's teaching text, the first chapter of Matthew. If you've got a Bible with you, I'd love you to turn with me to Matthew chapter one. And I'm gonna... As part of this time together in the reading of the scriptures, I'm also gonna be lighting our first Advent candle, which we're gonna be doing every Sunday as we gear up to Christmas morning with today's candle symbolizing the hope that we get to embody and to carry. And these folks, by the way, they're here for a reason. They're not just kind of like lurking around. Um, So... Uh, Normally, we read the teaching text as part of our worship. Usually, uh, we invite a member of our team to read uh, the teaching text, but I'm gonna take one for the team this morning because to invite anybody else to do it would just be way too cruel. So Matthew chapter one, here we go. The way of Jesus, this is the word of the Lord. Come, Holy Spirit. 
This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, son of David and the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah the father of Perez and Zariah, whose mother was Tamar, Perez the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram, Ram the father of, I'm not even gonna try and attempt to say it, that guy, the father of Nashon, Nashon the father of Salmon, Salmon the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab, Boaz the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth, Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of King David, and David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife, and Solomon the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asa, Asa the father of Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, Jeroham the father of Uzziah, Uzziah the father of Jotham, Jotham the father of Ahaz, Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, Hezekiah the father of Masani, Masani the father of Amon, Amon the father of Josiah, and Josiah the father of Jeconiah, and his brothers at the time of the exile to Babylon. I'm going to pause for a moment and take a breath. Thank you so much. We're doing all right. You still with me? Great. <laughs> Thanks, mate. Oh, such a patronizing tap on the shoulder there. Thank you for that. All right. Let me keep going. After the exile to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shetiel, and Shetiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abihud, Abihud the father of Elakim, Elakim the father of Azor, Azor the father of, father of Zadok, Zadok the father of Akim, Akim the father of Elud, Elud the father of Elazar, Elazar the father of Matan, Matan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, and Mary was the mother of Jesus, who is called the Messiah.
For centuries, it had felt like winter. The glories of the past were a distant memory with exodus, giants falling to the ground, temples, kings, and prophets. And of course, there were hard days too. There was the wilderness, there was the calf, there was the disobedience, and of course, the exile. But there was always the return, the turning of the season. Yet winter hadn't broken for a long, long time. Yahweh hadn't spoken for centuries. And ruled by another empire, there was just chaos and darkness. Yet even in the winter, hope didn't die. There was still the promised hope of a new song that the psalmist had sung about, the hope of a new covenant that Jeremiah had prophesied about. And there was the promise of a new heavens and a new earth that Isaiah had dreamt about. Israel knew that their only hope lay in some future action of God himself. And so they waited and they waited They waited for a Messiah, an anointed one, one chosen by God who would act like a king and a priest and a prophet to restore them once again. Their cry was, O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom us, captive Israel. In Advent, we get to practice something that we're not very good at. That's waiting. We get to look back and join in with an ancient story, an ancient story that is full of longing and is full of desire. But the truth is, we don't really like waiting, do we? With Prime and the ping of the microwave and the next episode beginning in 13, 12, 11, 10 seconds, we're being formed to never wait at all. And we just want everything now, don't we? And yet Advent, it gently provokes us to see that waiting is the only context into which Jesus makes himself known. Everyone in the birth narratives is waiting. We're gonna see this in Matthew over the course of the next three weeks, but we also see it in the rest of the gospels. Mary and Joseph, they're waiting for nine months. The Magi are waiting and watching. The shepherds are waiting. Zechariah and Elizabeth, they are waiting. The whole of the faithful in Israel, they find themselves waiting. Because those who wait are those who truly get to meet the Messiah in all of his fullness. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the great martyr, puts it like this. It's going to appear on the screen. For the greatest, the most profound, tenderest things in the world, we must wait. We feel as if life needs to happen in the storm, in the flurry in the franticness of life, but actually life with God, the divine life that we get to engage in, it takes place through sprouting, growing, and becoming. We must learn to wait once again. And in Advent, we get to practice. Because as we wait for the things of God, it does something to us. Waiting forms us. It shapes us beyond being the kid who gets everything that they want whenever they want it. You know the kind of kids that I'm talking about, right? Because living in that kind of way, it shrinks us. It shrinks us right the way down. It makes our hearts and our worlds really, really small. It reduces our lives down to what's right in front of us in any given moment. What we can control and what we can achieve for ourselves, what we can grab around us. Like we love the immediate, we love the available. And yet as we try to control our lives, we don't need to wait anymore. We have access to lots and lots of things. And yet our lives shrink. They become a bit predictable. 
It's like following an algorithm. You purchased this, so you must be interested in this. A world of unlimited potential gets reduced down to simply one option. Without waiting, we hurry. And we hurry towards the same old, same old, what we've always done and what we've always been about. And it is uncomfortable. It's not easy. It requires patience. But waiting, it breaks us out of this predictable way of living with these set, limited options. Advent and waiting opens us right up. Because in Advent and in waiting, there is room to breathe. And in the breathing, the waiting, our hearts and our lives get to expand a little bit more. Our lives get bigger. As we learn to wait, we see desires take hold of our hearts, dreams that are beyond us, things that we can't manufacture or achieve for ourselves. We begin to long for things that are beyond us. And as we wait, our hopes and our lives get more expansive. In waiting, we begin to develop this really healthy sense of restlessness a discontentment of what is around us and a longing for more. We long for something new to break over us. Set patterns are left behind as we attend to our deepest desires, not the surface level desires or the desires of the wish lists that we're building as we gear up to Christmas, but our deepest desires and longings. And as we wait and as we're a little bit restless, as we long for more, we become open to a life that is beyond the predictable. We become open to the unexpected, to surprises and to miracles. Ultimately, we open ourselves up to God, a life beyond simply ourselves. And we get to see that he is our hope. Your hope, it doesn't, re- doesn't lie in your predictability or a structured life. It lies ultimately in the Messiah, Emmanuel, who makes his home amongst us. We love the same old, we love the predictable, and yet in Advent, we, we feel this invitation to long for the surprise and for the unexpected. Because ultimately, that's how Jesus reveals himself in the incarnation. And that's why Matthew's gospel begins in the way that it does with this genealogy, this awkward long list of names. Matthew is essentially a biography of the life of Jesus. We're going to be talking about it for 19 months. And for 40 years, the apostles have been retelling the stories and the teachings of Jesus orally as they moved around the place. And then the author of this particular gospel, who is anonymous, but we assume is Matthew the tax collector, he carefully rearranges all of the life of Jesus into this book, or as he puts it in the first words of the book, the account of the origin of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David and the son of Abraham. Those who were waiting for the Messiah, they would have developed these certain expectations of what he would be like. And yet this Jesus of Nazareth figure, he was claiming, and people were claiming about him that he was king of the Jews, the son of man, the son of God. Their expectations began to be subverted, were questioned, because everything about Jesus was different from how you would have expected him. He was born to an unmarried peasant teenage girl. He was born in Bethlehem of all places, born into poverty. He spent decades hidden, just sweeping up the clippings from the workshop floor. And then there was his teachings, his miraculous supernatural miracles, 
There was his provocative, subversive actions towards the Jewish leaders, his turning of the tables, his running towards the sick, but his running away from the crowds and from fame. And then, of course, there's his entry into Jerusalem, not on a white horse with a chariot, with a crown on his head, but on a donkey. The Messiah was supposed to be the one who would overthrow the Roman Empire, not be pinned to a Roman cross and humiliated and murdered. And then there was the rumor of an empty tomb, breakfasts on the beach, and then supposedly a rising into the heavens. Nothing about Jesus lined up with expectations of him. Everything about him was surprising. And then so we begin with this genealogy, this way in that culture to prove your worth, your family line, and what a family we've got here. It begins with Abraham, the founding father, the one from whom God promised that all of the nations of the earth would be blessed. And then it moves to King David, the one who was promised that his kingdom would be established forever. And as we read these names, or for me, struggle to read these names, it's kind of lost on us as we look back on it now. But if you were a first century Jew, you would be struck with this list. You'd be moving from name to name with a sense of surprise and excitement. As Tom Wright puts it, what's going on in Matthew 1 is like a great procession marching down the street. And you would clock who's at the front and who's at the middle, but your eyes would be drawn to the person who's last in line, the place of highest honor, the one who comes right at the end. And Matthew carefully arranges these names into three groups of 14. Or a better way to put it is actually into six groups of seven names. And the number seven, again, it's lost on us in our culture, but the number seven in that age was a powerful statement of holiness and of royalty. To be born at the beginning of the seventh seven was huge. Matthew is clear here. Jesus is the one that Israel had been waiting for all the long, the long expected Messiah, the climax and the fulfillment of the story of all of the earth. And yet even this genealogy is surprising because in a male-dominated society, it includes women, women who would have had no legal rights in the day, women who would have been completely under their husband's power. And yet for most of the women included in this list, their husbands are not even named in the genealogy. Why is it? Because in the way of the surprising kingdom, both women and men get to equally take the lead in all things. But also look at the names. Tamar, an adulteress. Rahab, a prostitute. Ruth, who wasn't even a Jew. And then Mary, the teenage peasant mother of God. It doesn't make any sense. Why on earth would all of these names feature on this list? Because as we're going to see next week, in the way of the king's kingdom, it is into the scrappiness of life that the purpose of the Messiah is made most known. Muck and mess do not exclude us from the things of God. Actually, they seem to be the places that the Messiah loves to build a home. Everything about Jesus was unexpected. But there was one thing that caught everybody by surprise. The waiting ones, they expected a Messiah who would kind of fall into a similar pattern or rhythm as the other great names of old, Abraham, David. They would have expected an appointed and anointed leader, a great leader, a great man, one empowered by God. But nobody expected the glory of it all to be revealed. 
that this Messiah wouldn't just be empowered by God, but would actually be God himself. As we learn to wait, even in this season, even in this new year that begins with Advent, we open ourselves up to the possibility of the unexpected, to surprises, to miracles, and to mystery. Through the incarnation, we get to receive the greatest mystery of them all, that God himself would take on flesh and blood, that the Messiah would be Emmanuel, God with us, and that he would become fully human in every single way. It's gonna appear on the screen, but Paul puts it like this to Timothy, without question, this is the great mystery of our faith. Christ was revealed in a human body. The writer of Hebrews also puts it like this, for this reason, he, Jesus, had to be made like them, like us, fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God. Jesus, the Messiah, became human, really human. He lowered himself to take on our form and our frame. A womb became the place where heaven and earth met. The ancient of days became a baby, a vulnerable child. The one by whom and for whom everything was made now had to depend upon a teenage mother. Through the incarnation, we're faced with the greatest mystery of them all. Jesus, the God-man, the fully human Lord of everything. And not only was this just a quick trick for a couple of years, for like 33 years, to sort our mess out and then he could return back. As Jesus ascended into heaven, we read this in Acts chapter one, the angel said to his disciples, someday, I'm quoting here, someday he will return from heaven in the same way that you saw him go. In the same way. Jesus' divine and human nature will never be separated because whenever Jesus became human, he did so forever. The question is, are we gonna join him in becoming fully human ourselves? We can't ever get used to the mystery of the incarnation. We can't get used to it. We can't get used to it if we approach the manger in the way that we should, with eyes that are wide open with wonder. Eugene Peterson puts it like this. It's gonna appear on the screen. Wonder is the only adequate launching pad for exploring this fullness, this wholeness, this human life. Once a year, each Christmas, for a few days at least, we and millions of our neighbors turn aside from our preoccupations with life reduced to biology or economics or psychology and join together in a community of wonder. The wonder, it keeps us open-eyed, expectant, alive to life that is always more than we can account for, that always exceeds our calculations, that is always beyond anything that we can make. We're in danger all of the time, whether we realize it or not. We're in the danger of reducing God down to what is predictable, to what is expected, what we think he's like and what we think he does. We can tend to box God in, setting limits on his nature and his activity, placing limits on what he can and cannot do. And usually this is based on our experiences of him, our levels of comfort, and so we begin to box him in. And yet there's an invitation for us this Advent 
to become a community of wonder once again, where we can see that he is more expansive and yet closer than we can imagine, that he is, that he is holy other, and yet he comes as a vulnerable child. There are layers and layers of Jesus's character that he is willing to reveal to us if only we would approach him, not thinking that we have him and all of his ways sussed, but if we approach him with humble wonder. Whenever we approach the manger with wonder, the Messiah does reveal himself, but reveals himself in the only way that he can, full of mystery, full of the miraculous, with the supernatural, and ultimately with the unexpected. My question to you this Advent, brothers and sisters, are you open to Jesus surprising you once again? Are you open to a Messiah who reveals himself beyond your own expectations? In 1968, the world was fragile. And with the backdrop of the Vietnam War and the recent assassinations of Bobby Kennedy and Dr. King, the world is in a bit of a mess. And three men climbed aboard the Apollo 8 to attempt the world's riskiest mission to date as these three men attempted to enter into a lunar orbit of the moon. They set off, everything was going well, until there were these moments of static and deafening silence at mission control. Jim Lovell, in the midst of the silence, in the midst of the waiting, the panicked waiting, he was able to perform a burn around the moon to be able to pull the spaceship into orbit, to pull it into this looping lunar orbit. Contact was made once again with mission control. And from the dark side, the far side of the moon, Jim Lovell took humanity's first proper look at the surface of the moon from 60 miles out. And he began to plot the future coordinates that would set Aldrin and Armstrong on the moon at last. Yet on the third orbit, the third loop of the moon from the dark side, the astronauts saw something that took their breath away. They saw a burst of color rising above the lunar surface and they saw home, they saw this. Jim Lovell scrambled to get a camera to take this photo, one of the most famous photos that has ever been taken, a photo that we know and love as Earthrise. Lovell describes looking through the window into home and describes it like this, I'm quoting here, he looked at this whole and round, beautiful but small home that held all of the hope and the life and all of the things that the crew of the Apollo 8 knew and loved. And he said this, it was the most beautiful thing that there was to see in all of the heavens. Jim Lovell famously was able to cover earth with his thumb. Five billion people. He was just able to cover it a war raging in Vietnam, culture shifting, all of the power and the potential of earth, just able to cover it. He was able to cover home. Earth looked incredible, it looked remarkable, it looked absolutely stunning, but it also looked fragile, vulnerable. A little blue marble in the midst of a chaotic universe. And later, on Christmas Eve, 1968, the crew of the Apollo 8 recorded a broadcast for about a billion people to listen into on Christmas Eve. 
And as they recorded this broadcast, looking at home, looking at the earth, they said something that nobody really expected. I'm going to let you listen to it. We are now approaching uh, lunar sunrise, and uh, for all the people back on earth, the crew of Apollo 8 has a message that we would like to send to you. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth, and the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters, and God said, Let there be light, and there was light. And God saw the light, that it was good, and divided the light from the darkness. cuts out with all of the crazy space noise. But the crew of the Apollo 8 say, and from the crew of Apollo 8, good night, good luck, and God bless everyone on the good earth. We can find ourselves often in orbit, looping around the same old, the same old, the same old with these limited and boxed in expectations and yet Advent invites us to stop, to wait and to look up and to see rising above the surface Jesus as he truly is, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham, Emmanuel, the fully human, vulnerable Lord of everything. Advent, it wants to do something to you. It wants to subvert your expectations as you gaze upon hope once again, to gaze upon our surprising savior, one who is all powerful yet supremely glorious, one who is above all powers and principalities and yet one who is like us, relatable, human, Advent invites us to move from darkness to light. It provokes us to behold the mystery that we can't quite loop around. Jesus incarnating himself, the word of the Father now in flesh appearing. 
Jesus may be the same yesterday, today, and forever, but I can't help but see in Advent that there is a depth to him that I will never reach the end of. I've been through some stuff with Jesus, but trust me, whenever it comes to my experience of him, and especially my knowing of him, I am barely scratching the surface. The Messiah is bigger and he is closer. He is more complex and more knowable than I can ever imagine. I just need a season to slow down and to wait and to look up at him and to see him not as I think he is, but as he truly is. Brothers and sisters, Advent is the season where we as charismatics are invited to become more like contemplatives as we behold the mystery of the Messiah. For as we do that, we will see that our beholding of the mystery and our empowered life in the spirit are actually one in the same thing. This Advent, there's an invitation for us to leave behind the set, predictable way of life, the way that we have boxed Jesus in, where we limit his power and his activity. And there's an invitation for us to go on a journey of active waiting. There's an invitation for us as a family to become a community of wonder once again, where we open ourselves up to the unexpected in such a way that we can't help but rehearse and retell his story throughout this city and this region. And his story in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning and through him all things were made and in him was life and that life was the light of all of mankind and this light, it shines into the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. His story, the word has become flesh. He has made his dwelling amongst us and we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father full of grace and truth. This Advent, let's stop for a bit. Let's slow down. Let's wait. And let's receive Jesus as he truly is, as he fully reveals himself amongst us. And may our cries, our longing, our prophetic prayer simply be, come, thy unexpected Jesus. Let's stand together, shall we? Andy. So our, our question for you and for ourselves is, what would it look like if God moved into your life? If God moved towards your life? 1 Kings 19 says this, go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord for I am about to pass by. Then a great and powerful wind tore the mountain apart, shattered the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake came a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire came a gentle whisper. You hear the echoes of 1 Kings 19 in the Christmas story as the king above all kings moved in, not surrounded by celebrities or intellectuals or the wealthy, 
but in the pretty dirty animal shelter. I think for so many of us, we think if God moved towards my life, it would be like a bulldozer. And I'm not sure how I feel about that. And yet the reality is he comes offering seeds of hope and of life. Not in an earthquake or a consuming fire or a great wind, but in a whisper. In a whisper. Someone in our community was woken at half one this morning by the Lord. Not a common occurrence for them, they assured me. And this is what they felt like God was saying. If you're looking for me to prove to you that I am real in some spectacular way, that's not going to happen. Spend time alone with me in the quiet and I will prove to you that I am God. An invitation to wait, an invitation to slow down, an invitation to be quiet and to listen. revivalist uh, John Wesley's life was turned around. This is how he described the experience. He said that his heart was strangely warmed. I love that. Didn't say that he like shook to his boots. Didn't say he fell over. All that came later. The moment that everything turned around, he simply said, my heart was strangely warmed as the presence of God moved towards him. It's our prayer as you sit in Advent that God by his spirit strangely warms your heart. Father, would you meet us as we prepare for Christmas? long for you. And we welcome you freshly in our lives.